right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is the intro for episode 64. Jason Lingren and I are going to finally address uh, the false history that we've referenced so many times, um, surmising that our history was rewritten sometime around the Middle Ages forward, continues to be rewritten. Uh, this is proven out by events like 9-11, Sandy Hoax, false events written into the chronology. The historical timeline have vast effects on the way we live. Um, so it's proof that the idea that we're expressing here is still being done in the common era. And also um, questioning, you know, there probably was no dark ages at all. And then expressing the premise that whatever came before these Middle Ages seems to have been wiped from the record. Uh, we cover a lot of people here. In the first hour, we really dig into time because it's so critical. Um, I've said so many times on this show, if you want to identify nonsense, you need to start by looking and identifying that which is natural and then looking and identifying that which is artificial or man-made. Truth is, the natural clock for this place, whether it's natural in the way we think it is or not, doesn't matter, is the sky, is the sun and the moon is the motion of the sky above our heads. The artificial systems are things like clocks and calendars and chronologies. Um, as so many of us are aware, we have been living under what's called the Scaligerian chronology from a guy named Scaliger. Most people know him as Josephus, who is a total fraud. It's been pointed out time and time again, even to the point where people have questioned whether this individual actually physically ever existed as a man. In the first hour, we really dig into time, things like daylight savings times, calendars, words, what's in a word. And by the time we get to the end of the first hour, we are just getting into the fraudulent timeline. We cover so much in the second hour that begins to identify people, some of which who are still living, like Anatoly Fomenko, uh, who have seemingly put some bulletproof evidences out there that in fact the timeline, our historic, you know, our history, our historical timeline was changed in the Middle Ages. And he starts to identify who did it. But we cover people like Gene Hardwin, claimed 1600s. Isaac Fig Newton, claimed 1600s. Edwin Johnson, interesting man, claimed 1800s into 1900. Um, Foster Alberthnot. Nikolai Morosov. I mean, I'm not even going to go down the whole list. I'm sitting here. But the big the big player of the day, of course, is Al Anatoly Fomenko. The funny thing about Fomenko, and he is still alive for those people who are not aware, is it seems to me that people in academia in Russia have taken way more seriously what Fomenko is laying down. And he shows his work, and he shows his math, and he shows his process. Um, I actually got books prepping up months ago for this episode that were written on this side of the world, where people go in and they nitpick Fomenko to find problems. And then they lay their arguments based on a handful of problems. Some of them have merit. Some of them are arguable. And they ignore the astrological work he does, where he can basically show that historical eclipses, as an example, 
could not have happened in the time they're subscribed. And of course, that always brings us back to the 1100s. And we are going to cover a number of people who independently went at this and came to the same conclusions, that our historical timeline was changed in the Middle Ages. Anyhow, it's a shame we couldn't get through more in the first hour to begin to reveal what's in the second hour, but the second hour is a bombshell for anyone who's interested in this. And we will be posting links on YouTube and on Crow Triple Seven Radio to 20 or 22, I forgot, I think it's 22 PDFs from Anatoly Fomenko for those who are not familiar and want to look into it. Anyhow, this is a heck of an episode, and it ties into so much of what we've covered. Um, The Jesuits, the Benedictines, the idea that the sun was encoded into biblical scripture, the Masonic influence, um, royalty, whether or not whole dynasties ever existed, and the idea that history has been replicated over and over and over to the point where it appears that certain so-called royal or ruling families basically just duplicated in reverse Uh, names and things that had happened to prove out their pedigree, it would seem. Anyhow, this is a great episode. I hope to see you all for the second hour because there's a lot of meat and potatoes there. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason for episode 62, and history is a lie agreed upon. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to episode 64 of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Jason Lindgren and I are going to finally go at what I view as a false historical timeline There are currently people in the modern age challenging it. Um, It's a funny thing. There are people like Anatoly Fomenko and anyone with an interest in challenging the historical Scaligerian timeline that we follow in the West and have followed in the West for known history, I guess. um, Read Anatoly Fomenko. It appears to me that if I lived in Russia and spoke Russian and new people in academia in Russia, that a lot of those people would really be backing what Anatoly Fomenko is putting out there. Um, I even recently purchased some books from over here that looked at Fomenko's work and looked at what others were putting forth in this part of the world. And what it looks like to me, for the most part, is scientism. It looks like what they do with Anatoly Fomenko's challenging of the Scaligerian historical timeline which I believe to be false. They look at it and they look for problems, which is okay. But the problem is, is they don't seem to take the validations he finds um, using eclipses and all these other things. But having said that, again, um, we'll try to post uh, on Crow Triple Seven Radio a link to the Anatoly Fomenko work in PDF form. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. This is a very large subject, I think, that uh, we could just delve into more and more and more. Yeah, I mean, there is so much here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a couple quick quotes uh, that are listed in the in the beginnings of some of the Fomenko PDFs. Um, I've said so many times on this show that history is a lie agreed upon, which is a quote attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, whether or not there was such a man. But here's a couple more. History is a pack of lies about events that never happened told by people who weren't there. That is attributed to American philosopher George Satayana. Here's an interesting one from St. Augustine. Be wary of mathematicians, particularly when they speak the truth. That's an interesting one to think about, because is St. Augustine protecting a false timeline and worried that mathematicians will out it, or is it the other way around? Hard thing to know. Here's another one attributed to Clarence Darrow. History repeats itself. 
That's one of the things that's wrong with history. That's a hell of a quote there, and I'll tell you why. Because in the Anatoly Fomenko work, he went to great lengths to use, I don't know if algorithms is the right word, but to use equations and mathematical means to demonstrate uh, that it appears that much of history is the same story being told over and over and over. The ruling of a single king turned into a whole history and a pedigree for that royal family, that kind of thing going on. I'll do one more because it's from George Orwell, who wrote 1984, that so many people are familiar with. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. I always like that one. Yeah, these quotes go on and on. And actually, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll do the couple that, uh, that I sent you before we started up here. This is a pretty good quote as well, attributed to Ambrose Bierce. History is an account, mostly false, of events, mostly unimportant, which are brought about by rulers, mostly knaves, and soldiers, mostly fools. And then here's one that's an old African proverb that really relates to what we're about to talk about. Until lions have their historian, tales of the hunt shall always glorify the hunters. Lastly, and I think this one is so pertinent, this is attributed to John Still from the Jungle Tide, I guess. Um, Think of like the Who song, Eminence Front, because that's exactly what's being echoed in this quote. The memories of men are too frail a thread to hang history from. Um, In the song Eminence Front, which pops to mind from the who, uh, you know, he says over and over, people forget. This is the basis in the book Animal Farm, where the animals have their entire view of reality shifted over four or five years because the sheep and, and the horses and, you know, the other animals can't quite remember what came four or five years before. It's a hell of a lesson. Anyhow, Jason, um, you want to start out? Where, where do you want to start out here? Well, let's just go over. Really what we're here to discuss is evidence showing serious inconsistencies in the mainstream historical timeline, which, as you mentioned, came down to a man named Scaliger. Oh, 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 hold on. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We forgot. We were going to start with the with the new captures. I forgot. Ah, yes. Let's go over that. Two new lunar waves. Yeah, possible two new lunar waves. And just to be clear, I don't vet lunar waves anymore. Um, I'm not the be-all and end-all authority on lunar waves. Um, If there is value to lunar waves and there is a valuable there to be found, people are going to have to repeatedly see it, film it, and come to understand something beyond whatever it is I say. But anyhow, a channel called Zoop Zook which is spelled two words, Z-U-P, new word, Z-U-K-E, filmed possibly a lunar wave on 7717. That's posted on his YouTube channel, and that's the channel name I just gave you. He shot it with a P900. A lot of people are always asking uh, if a P900 can do the job, and here it is. But I will mention, when you're shooting the moon, uh, you've got to get some experience under your belt. One of the big things is exposure. You always want to make sure you're not overexposed. So in other words, the moon is not too bright because if you are overexposed, the surface detail will diminish. And if you do catch something like a lunar wave, it'll be very difficult to vet. But um, this is not the first example uh, that we've seen like this that Zoop Zoop provides. And you if you look at the edge of the moon and repeatedly view the clip at the highest possible resolution, um, you will see it. Did you have a chance to look at Zoop Zoop's uh, capture? Yes, I did. What'd you think? While it does look a little washed out, as you said, from the exposure, it, it 
seems to have the same telltale signs. Like you can watch the edges, and you can see it going across. It's just not as distinct as yours or quite a few other people's. But、uh, can it be done with a P nine hundred? Apparently, it can. Well, not only that, man. Here's here's a guy out there doing the work. It's not an easy thing to film the moon endlessly until you catch something. So my hats off to both Zoop Zook and Brennan Clark Channel, which I'm about to mention now. The other channel is Brennan Clark, spelled B R E N N A N, new word C L A R K. Brennan Clark Channel filmed a possible lunar wave on seven nine seventeen. Did you have a chance to check that one out, Jason? Yeah, that one was a lot more like the、uh, the other ones because it looked like it was shot through a telescope. And that one, the only thing I noticed different was the、uh, the double wave seemed to be closer together. Right, the period. I, I picked that up right off.、Um, you know, we have a vast variety of waves. I think Randy might have the longest period. I've forgotten now whether it's forty-five seconds or longer, which goes to show what experience will do for you. Because the average person would see a wave go by, they might wait a few seconds and then probably turn off the clip, being excited they caught something. In the case of Randy, he sat there for I don't know a full minute and a half or longer,、um, and he caught the second wave.、Um, we have come to understand that what we consider to be true lunar waves come in pairs.、Um, this has been shown time and time again. Anyhow, do you have anything to add about lunar waves before we jump in to、uh, our false Scaligerian chronology that we live by in the West? Keep doing it, folks. Let's、uh, let's just keep adding evidence and.、Uh... Try and figure out what's going on here. Yeah, and again, kudos to both Zoop Zook and Brendan Clark. I know how much work it is to sit out there staring at a moon that doesn't do much,、uh, trying to catch something. It's a lot of work, and my hats off to you guys. I hope you keep filming, and I hope you post if you catch something. Anyhow, it's all you. And sorry for interrupting the first time there, Jason. Ah,、uh, no worries. So, what it appears is that the powers that be have radically altered what our sense of history actually is, in yet another attempt, as we have discussed in the past. To further disconnect us from our natural spiritual path and keep us in a state of perpetual confusion, the best and most obvious example of this, I would say, is daylight savings time, which is a pointless venture, especially today, that tens of millions of people are subjected to every year in numerous countries across the world. And I looked up to see how many people still do it, and there are still quite a few countries that still do it. Daylight savings time is absolutely proof、um, of tampering with our chronology and how we exist within time. For my money, somewhere around the Middle Ages, somewhere around the Dark Ages,、um, these are educated guesses.、Um, what came before in our history was rewritten, and what actually happened was washed away. And the new modern history was rewritten, literally fabricated much of it, most of it. Some of it looks to be rulers or royalty, so-called royalty. Trying to validate the fact that they belong there by making up royal histories to prove that they should be where they are, this kind of thing. There are other reasons going on, but when we take a look at daylight savings time, it is a completely logically breakdownable thing. Breakdownable, love that.、Um, that demonstrates its valuelessness. There is actually an old Indian quote, and I've forgotten how it goes exactly, but it's something to this effect. This is attributed supposedly to an Indian chief or something. Who knows where it came from? But it goes like this: Only a white man would believe that he could cut a foot off the bottom of a blanket, sew it to the top of a blanket, and think he had made something longer. This is an exact allegory to what daylight savings is. When they initially implemented it, the are some of the argument was, oh, the farmers need more daylight. So on the face of it, you can see the falsehood. 
So let's dig in a little bit further. What's actually going on here is the clock that we use to gauge our day, since it's we've moved away from natural means, which is the sky, and we now use artificial means, which is man-made systems. Um, the artificial system that we use to gauge our day, called a clock, has changed by an hour. But the real tell here is when it's done. It's done at the spring and the fall equinox. These are key points in our life. These are key points in the kind of rotational, cyclical time that we live in. And when I say cyclical, let me be clear. We know that every time summer comes, fall will come after, winter will come after, spring will come after. That's what I'm referring to in cyclical. In the same way we know when night comes, there's gonna be a dawn and day will follow. These are cyclical things that we can observe. Now, the division of our year, as I've said so many times, is solstices and equinoxes. So it's a very telling thing indeed when the powers that be come in and jack up the clock, pull your kind of circadian rhythm out of the natural cycle of things right at the equinoxes. Anyhow, that was a, a, a bit of a lengthy response there, Jason. Where, where are you at? Well, that's all completely accurate. It's going to throw off the rhythm of things and... It just drives me nuts. Now, do I like having a little longer daylight in the summer? Of course I do, but I would much rather keep to the to the natural rhythm of things and get us more in sync with the earth than jacking things all over the place. Right. So, I mean, basically what we're looking at here is an hour is basically one twenty-fourth of a day. So they're jacking up our time by one twenty-fourth of a day at both equinoxes. But let, let's relate this in a way we can think about when we did the weaponization of music show, uh, we showed that simply changing the frequency of orchestral A from 432, the Verde tuning, um, which is probably more helpful to the human body, to 440 was the weaponization. But we're only talking about eight cycles a second here. So you can see how small adjustments to a natural system can have quite an effect on the beings that exist within that system, right? Absolutely. It, there's just no doubt. Yeah, I mean, there's really no getting away from it. A simple eight cycles a second has weaponized our music. And so when we begin to think about a full hour being jacked at the equinoxes, it really is a blatant effort to pull people out of syncing with the cyclical nature of the natural system we live in and understanding, getting used to, and learning from the cyclical nature of that system. And I would go so far as to say, if I pick any given day of the year, um, say January 24th as a random grab, 365 days later, is that day going to be January 24th again? Look at a calendar and think about it. And then in the next year, will it be that same day again? And the next year, will it be that same day again? The answer is no. Um, and this is the same uh, of equinoxes. So there's that. But anyhow, before we jump in further, I wanted to mention, uh, I'm going to get it on the record here, the Great Wall of China, which is also covered in the Anatoly Flamenco work, um, I have viewed for a long time as a modern construct. As fate would have it, Anatoly Flamenco also says that it's a modern construct. But Jason, I'm going to kick it back so we can keep pushing forward. Well, to kind of finish up the whole daylight savings time thing, what it seems to me is that whomever is behind the scenes pulling the strings on everything, it's a lot of little things that are adding up to a much larger cumulative effect. Would you agree with that? There, there's no doubt. It almost appears to me, um, and I mean, it really, really appears to me that the history that was swept away before the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, whenever that was, 
was probably a lot closer to nature. In other words, things like alchemy, which have gotten such a bad name because of the powers that be, because of what you're taught in school, because of modern chemistry, because of modern scientism, they don't recognize a system that seeks to work wholly within the constructs of nature. So what we see here is all these artificial systems come to bear. And I've said quite a few times on this show, if you want to begin to understand falsehood, the first step you should always take, in my view, is identify that which is natural and identify that which is man-made. The reason for this is that which is natural, whether or not it's natural in the way we think it is, it doesn't matter. From our point of view, it appears to be a perfect system. Now, the flip side of that is the artificial systems like a clock, like time, like measuring a year that doesn't quite come out evenly. Um, all these things are artificial systems made by men doing the best they can, but nonetheless, they are not perfect systems. And not only are they not perfect systems, a lot of times there are people with bad intent behind these systems. So. There it is, man. And I'd like to suggest that the the powers that be are more in touch with nature in a sense because one of the major religions of the Western world pre-Dark Ages would have been Druidism. And we see a lot of that religion, if you want to call it that, their culture got got intertwined in with the things that the elites still do that we find out about, like the symbolism and the rituals and things. They still draw from that a lot. Well, I, I think what it appears is I have not looked at a religion that I am aware of that is not encoding the path of the sun. Now, this harkens back to alchemy. Um, alchemical procedures mostly need to start in the spring or at the vernal equinox. It's no different than a farmer planting a seed. A farmer is not going to plant his seed at Christmas time because it's not going to grow. The natural system requires that the farmer plant in spring for, for the most part. This is what alchemically, alchemical uh, procedure seeks to do, to stay in tune with where the sun is in the course of the acceptable year of our Lord, as it is phrased in the Bible, which is encoding alchemical ideas, the path of the sun. So what we see is in all the mar modern artificial constructs, and we'll get into this more, is that they've actually encoded their alchemy, their natural ways, their path of the sun, the motion of the planets, and these types of things. So even though the average person sees all these artificial systems, religions, and other things that we use in the modern age, they don't understand what has been encoded into them that people in the know can draw on anytime they want. Well, there's there's no doubt that the Bible encodes what's called astrotheology, and anybody who's even remotely looked into this kind of work knows that term. And, and you even did a great breakdown on how it's still being represented in, in media when you did the uh, the movie Michael a few years ago. Right. Um, you know, for, for those who haven't seen, you can go to my channel. There's a breakdown of the movie Michael, who is the archangel. Anytime you hear the word arch, there's your clue. Um, there's information being hidden below the surface. Um, the arch of the sky, the arch of Freemasonry, uh, it goes over and over and over. Uh, arch is almost always a keyword, even when it's used biblically as arc. Um, you're looking at a form of the word arch, in my view. But in the movie Michael, I just took the time to break down that Michael is not an angel at all. Uh, there's two storylines going on. It's like taking the Bible and doing a surface read. If that's what you do with the Bible, you're missing I don't even know how much. The majority of the information you're missing, it's the same in the movie Michael as an allegory. The storyline that people see and are entertained by is an angel that's going to 
I don't know whether the movie takes course over three days or something like that. Three or four days, I've forgotten. Anyhow, they're going to go get an angel and take him to Chicago. But the subtext, the encoded storyline, is that Michael is actually the son. And so he's not an angel. He's actually an angle of the sun. And Michael portrays the whole acceptable year of the Lord, all 12 months, Michael plays the role of the sun in every single month. And I break it down in the movie. So there's your allegory, man. On the surface, people are going to the movies. They're watching the movie, Michael. They're loving John Travolta. They're being entertained by a surface narrative and completely missing the fact of all the natural kind of alchemical information that's been encoded into the storyline. So the two storylines, the one that people recognize happens over three days. The one that most people don't even know exists happens over a full year or the full acceptable year of our Lord. Now that's a movie from the 1990s. What is it about it that jumped out at you that made you realize that the encoding was there? Well, I had already been breaking down movies. I started looking at the Indiana, Indiana Jones movies and I, you know, I, I was just aware that it was all encoded and I had just never really taken the time to thoroughly demonstrate it to someone else. It's like I'd been looking at things and realizing it to myself. I'd even talked with my wife about it. Um, and in the Indiana Jones movie, I was moving through the signs of the Zodiac, Indiana Jones playing the sun. Um, and that's a trilogy. You can do this with so many movies. But when it came to Michael, um, the fact that he was the archangel made it the perfect candidate to make the demonstration. And even in the beginning of the movie, what you see is they keep going through this farmland they're driving in and there's all these what do you call the uh, the grain storage towers silos there's all these silos so it's almost always like there's these twin towers which is quite often the twin pillars is marking the equinox points and the center of that would be the sun at its highest point when the title for the movie Michael comes in, it comes up from below the horizon, up over the farmland, and then it glows very quickly like the sun. Um, there's so much more to the movie um, that I'm not really going to get into here, but you can go check out the clip. And if you have eyes to see with, you'll understand. Uh, many people who were shown still won't understand, but there it is. That's also very representative of the uh, the Freemasonic altar picture you see with the with the twin pillars and the sun above that's exactly the same thing quite often among other things and they encode so many things with the pillars joaquin and boaz but quite often uh, it's encoding the equinoxes uh the vernal spring and the uh the fall equinox there which would dictate that whenever the sun is in the middle and high you're looking at the summer solstice or the height of the power of the sun before it begins to fall down to winter, which is also the allegory of fire and ice or hell. Right. So all of this, of course, is what we're talking about is the true clock of our world, which is the sky. And we have more than enough data to accurately to make accurate mathematical models of where and when astronomical events have occurred and will occur. And this is where, when we start looking at the history, that inconsistencies start jumping out at us. So we have events such as solstices, equinoxes, and eclipses that can all be accurately calculated. And then we find in the past that sometimes things just don't line up where they should be. Right. And in the Anatoly Fomenko work, uh, you'll see the Peloponnesian War so often is looked at. And for the longest time, I was thinking, what the hell is it about the Peloponnesian War? And then it dawned on me. The Peloponnesian War was covered uh, in, by so many different people, but during the course of the Peloponnesian War accounts, excuse me, there are accounts of eclipses. 
what Anatoly Flamenko did was he simply went in and he, you know, we have a, a sky clock. It's called our sky. Um, it's what's been described to you as space, as a solar system. Whatever it is, it is an accurate clock for our system, and it can be predicted and it can be rolled backwards to see where events took place. So he took these astronomical events and he basically showed, guess what, guys? The Peloponnesian War had to be, I've forgotten the date, it's 1100-something, I think, or maybe he came up with two dates within 100 years of each other where those eclipses were possible. He does a similar thing with... Uh, astronomical paintings in the Egyptian monument showing that those are way more recent. But while we're talking about equinoxes and solstices, I'll share something that happened, I don't know, two, maybe three years ago when I was still hardcore filming for the lunar wave and understanding that it seemed to be tied to the equinoxes in some way. I went to look up when the equinox, which was on its way, and I wanted to be filming in San Diego, and I read, I don't know what it was, the 20th, 21st, 22nd, whatever it was, was the reported day for the equinox. For some reason, as we got closer and closer and closer, I kept going back and checking, and something was bothering me. And this is when I found on space.com articles actually posted admitting that they were announcing the wrong day for the equinox and whole articles written about why this is no big deal. So let me say this. It's a big damn deal. The problem with our modern artificial ways of keeping time is we're basically taking someone else's word for stuff. Nobody understands when a true year has come. We don't even have the correct first of the year anymore. The correct first of the year is in March, in spring, at the vernal equinox, when the whole world is going to renew and all the animals are going to have babies and all the plants are going to start to grow. That is the true first of the year. As many are aware, it was jacked back, we were told, by Pope Gregory the 13th. I don't know, I'm grabbing from memory. And Julius Caesar is the claim that they jacked it back to January, which demonstrates that our historical timeline is being jacked with again. But to get back to the equinoxes, I have every reason to suspect that each year when we are told that a certain day is going to be a solstice or equinox, that we need to have a better way to check up on that. The problem is, is that the average person will say, well, on an equinox, the sun's going to rise due east. It's not good enough. I've gone down these roads. I've tried to logic it out. My point is this. Time is being screwed with. Your history is being screwed with. The equinoxes and the solstices are the only true division of seasons, the only true division of time, and openly these people have misreported the day of the vernal or spring equinox and then written long articles to demonstrate why that's no big deal, and I'm here to tell you it's a very big deal, and we have the absolute right, no, the necessity to understand when these points in our cyclical time are. But anyhow, back to you, Jason. All right, so next let's talk about calendars. And in the old Roman Empire, and before I even go any further since I'm mentioning the Roman Empire, don't think for one second that the Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. It's just called the Roman Catholic Church today. And if you think that's not an empire, you're kidding yourself. And all these things we're discussing today, I'd bet good money that the answers that we seek are in the Vatican archives, which you are not allowed to look at. Right. And, you know, it's kind of laughable. Uh, everybody knows or has been told that there's supposedly these vast catacombs under the Vatican housing all these secrets. And I would say this kind of shows part of the construct with which we live. Think about this. Napoleon Bonaparte owned that place at one point when he was emperor. So why didn't he walk off with all the information? How about World War II? 
during World War II, lo and behold, you know, Rome is out of it. But the truth is, whenever you have people vying for power and they're aware of information like that being available, you know what's going to happen. I mean, look what happened when we supposedly went into Iraq. First thing that happens is the museums get raided. Same thing happened with Egypt at the Egyptian Spring. The museum got raided. I suspect the reason that the museum got raided was to hide things, not to learn things. But my point is, is here we've been told ad infinitum for God knows how many decades that the Vatican is housing basically the history of the world down in these catacombs. How is it that conquering nations have never marched in there and walked away with it to get this valuable information? I think it begins to show part of the construct. It sure does. And as far as World War II... The Vatican helped a lot of high-ranking Nazis to escape by getting them passports, fake names, all that sort of thing. So take that as your your great, wonderful church, you know? Well, all I can say, man, is history is a lie agreed upon. Truer words were never spoken. I have no idea who originally said that, but in my view, it's a true thing. Right. So as we were saying, in the old Roman Empire, a year originally had 304 days divided into 10 months, which began in March. A 12-month calendar is said to have been put in by the Roman historian Titus Livius, also known as Livy, said to have lived from 59 BC to AD 17, and that it had been devised by the Roman king Numa Pompilius. Julius Caesar, in 46 BC, recognized huge problems with this calendar and created the Julian calendar, and this went into effect on January 1st, 45 BC. This calendar was used in the Roman world, a large amount of Europe, and even in European settlements all around the world. It was refined and eventually replaced by the Gregorian calendar in 1582 by Pope Gregory XIII. And this is the calendar still in use, and it had a 0.002% correction of the Julian calendar. And this 1582 point in time is where a lot of folks who are going after this new chronology situation think that a lot of the chicanery may have gone on. I, I don't think there's any doubt. Um, I can't tell you if there really was a man named Julius Caesar. I think it's pretty clear there probably was a Pope Gregory. Um, but there's a couple things here. First of all, you're looking at a claim here that Julius, um, you know, made a calendar after himself. So I guess he's the sun king, right? He's playing the sun, names the calendar after himself. The calendar is based on the movement of the sun, went into effect January 145 B.C. But here's the thing. Did you know that April Fool's Day has a direct bearing on this? You see, we are told that when this change was made from the actual true first of the year at the vernal equinox in March being changed to January, a bunch of people called pagans derisively understood that the true first of the year was in March. So when they changed the calendar, these people were still celebrating April 1st because the vernal equinox had just happened. And so supposedly Julius and his cronies referred to them as April fools to derisively down them to try to get them to adopt this bogus new idea that January 1 is the first of the year. Now, moving on to Pope Gregory, there's a whole other set of problems. In the Anatoly Fomenko work, many of these are outed. But, you know, some of the obvious ones is they didn't put a year zero. There's even this whole thing about how they spent all this effort to place Easter because Easter was so important to the Catholic Church, and they got it wrong. Not only did they get it wrong, they got it wrong in a way that seemingly shouldn't have happened. Um, seemingly, they should have known enough not to make the mistakes or pointed out. And while I won't get into that here because we have so much ground to cover, again, go look at the Anatoly Fomenko work, and we'll try to provide links to, uh, to some of those PDFs. Jason. 
And, and let's just say that Easter is basically the Christianized version of Passover. And what is the Passover for for the, for the Jewish folks? That's when the sun is passing overhead. That's right. This is all common stuff. Well, even Easter takes its name because at the vernal or spring equinox when the Passover is happening, uh, the sun is rising due east, Easter. So, yeah, it's all encoded there. It's all about the path of the sun, man. So many people have been taught by the church that the sun is evil, that sun worship is evil, and all this other bogus nonsense. The sun is what lights this place and allows every plant to grow and allows every animal to live and allows all the food to be produced. So if you're going to listen to some religious head tell you that it's evil, you're getting dragged down a garden path here. It's part of the natural system within we live. Whether or not it's natural in the way we think it's natural matters not. It simply is what it is. But anyhow, should I should I further demonstrate the encoding of the sun here with the Catholic saints again, Jason, or should we hold off? No, go ahead and put that in because we're going to get into some other stuff here as well, and I'd like to hear that. All right. I've covered this before on this show. And to make it perfectly abundantly clear that in the Western religious traditions, the Vatican took it upon itself, uh, probably with masonry involved, to encode the path of the sun in nearly every aspect of scriptural religion that we have in the West. And I will demonstrate that by taking 12 of the Catholic saints and demonstrating to you that they all belong to a month and that each of them represents the sun in that month. And I'll do the best I can. I've broke this down before. January, where the new bogus first of the year is St. Peter, or the sign of Aquarius, the water sign. So St. Peter, of course, is the rock that the Catholic Church is built on, and he is associated with the new bogus first of the year. Remember that for a second. February is St. Judas Iscariot, or the fishes, and he's the guy who betrayed his master and lost a day. Um, of course he lost a day because it's February. Sometimes February loses a day. There's the encoding. Now, here's where we're going to relate back to St. Peter of January. March, or the true first of the year, is St. Andrew, the brother of St. Peter, of course, because he is the true first of the year. So the new bogus first year is going to be his brother. Now, here's let me try to explain this the best I can. St. Andrew, and you can look this up in the statuary from the Vatican, is standing in front of this weird cross that's shaped like an X. It's called a saltier cross. It's not actually a cross of any kind. It's two compasses brought back to back. Those two compasses have a name. It's called a goniometer. What the goniometer is meant to measure is the sun coming across the equator at the vernal equinox, the true first of the year. So there it is encoded. Um... And uh, I won't go too much further into that. April is Matthew or the Taurus or the bull of the Zodiac. And for all the people who have read the Bible, you understand that the four gospel saints, um, I always mess this up, the man, the eagle, the bull and the lion are not only cardinal stars in the sky, they are signs of the Zodiac, the eagle having been changed from the sign of Scorpio, I guess because it was so obvious. But anyhow... Uh, it goes on to say that you will see representations of St. Matthew with a bull's head at his foot as of purpose to show us what the proper understanding of the thing he is representing. May is John, the disciple that loved Jesus. June is Thomas or Didymus. Now, this is very interesting. Didymus in Greek means twin. And since June 
which Thomas is, the sun in June, is directly rising out of the twins, and he himself is portrayed as a crabbed fellow, you see, moving into the sign of cancer. July is James the Greater. August is Judas, the brother of James. September is James the Less, surnamed Oblia, the just, holding the Libra. Of course he's holding the Libra because it's September, and that's when the fall equinox, which occurs on the sign of Libra. That is why St. James is holding the scales or the balance of justice. Now here's another direct proof. October is Nathaniel, who Christ saw under the fig tree gathering the last remaining fruits of the year and was called by Philip. Well, there's quite a bit here. Of course, Nathaniel who is October or the sun in October is gathering the last figs of the year because the harvest happened in September. After October, there's nothing less left to gather. But you see, he's called by Philip, which is the next sign, November. Philip, whose very name signifies the lover of the horse, as you see in the characteristic and Sagittarius of the Zodiac, who is always represented as half man, half horse, or so passionately attached to the purpose of the field that goes on and on and on. Even in John 1, now Philip was in Bethsaida. Bethsaida literally signifies the house of the hunters, and it goes on and on. And lastly, December is Simon the Canaanite. So, Two things are probably going to happen from a lot of people who have listened to this. A bunch of people will get upset, turn off, and quit thinking. Other people will probably think about what has just been said. What basically comes down to is that the Catholic Church encoded the old alchemical natural ideas into the scripture that we now use in the West as religion. So the people who do the surface reading, or when you go to a church most times and the preacher just reads from the Bible, the surface reading is not indicating to you what I just pointed out. What I just pointed out is that for one thing, the four gospel saints are not only cardinal stars, and I've forgotten the correct name for them, which would be the scorpion, the heart of the lion, uh, the bull, and the man, but they encode them to the zodiac as well. And all this is doing is marking out where the sun would be in the acceptable year of the Lord. And that was all a bit wordy, but there, we covered it again, Jason. Now, I'd just like to throw out something that has amused me for many years. I'm going to read these names again real quick. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew or Nathaniel, James the Lesser or Younger, Judas, Jude or Thaddeus, Matthew or Levi, Philip, Simon the Zealot, and Thomas. Now, I'm sorry, these don't sound like names you would encounter in the Middle East. These sounds more, more like people you would be having tea with in England. Well, there's there's a whole other side to this that I didn't really want to get into because I'm not into bagging on people's religion. What I'm trying to do here is show that there's critical information encoded in these things. I'm not downing anything anyone believes or accepts as their religious tradition. That is a personal choice for everyone. But you see, within the scope of the people who have looked at this, they even took the word Jesus and pointed out uh, that it could never have been a Hebrew name. And part of the reason for that was the Latin termination on the name Jesus, which ends in U.S., um, Jesus. 
that's a Latin termination. And it was shown in the old etymology. The work was pretty much unassailable when they went at it to show that this could never have been a Hebrew name, that it was Latinized. And I'm going to set aside the whole idea of what the Vatican has said, that the original Gospels were written in Greek and people have said, well, where is that? There's only replicas of that now. And they're taking the same track here, saying this stuff was created in Latin. But to get back to the story of the name of Jesus from these researchers, if you take the U.S. off the name Jesus, you're left with Jess or Yes. Now, here again, it relates to the sun. Um, yes is also related to the word very or verily. Uh, these affirmative, solid, positive words um, related to the sun back in the day for the simple reason that you knew darn well every morning the sun was going to come up when it should. It will be there. And in the scriptures, it was even pointed out that the Masons, the Masonic tradition, understood that in the Bible, every time the words verily, verily were written in scripture, that they were referring to the spring or vernal equinox. In the same way, the claim in these research was being made that if it was stated Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ in the scriptures, Masonic traditions who had been taught the encoding understood whether they were talking about the vernal or fall equinox. Now, I'm not going to go any further into this, but there it is again, relating straight back to the sun, where apparently the Vatican and Masonic traditions encoded uh, this ancient knowledge right into the biblical scriptures. So a lot of people will find that hard to swallow, but it's just information. Do with it what you will. Right. And I didn't bring that up to slam anyone's religion, but more to point out the fact that what we're talking about is an alteration of history, but probably by folks that are Western. Yeah, these guys. We're talking about these guys. I mean, if I had to venture a guess at who did the rewriting, I would suspect the Jesuit order in concert with the Benedictine monks. If I had to guess, and this is only an educated guess, that the Jesuits were kind of the controllers, the brains, the secret society, the unseen hand, and the Benedictines were the scribes who carried it out. That's my best guess. But you're looking at the very root of where our time got screwed up where we got pulled out of nature, and where false history began to really dominate what the average man can understand about, you know, a human existence in this world. Right. So there it is. Absolutely. All right. So according to mainstream history, in the 6th century, there was a Christian monk named Dionysus Exegius, or however you pronounce that. Exegus. Exegus. There we go. Who was part of the Scythian monks from the city of Thomas in the area of Scythia Minor. And although he was born in Scythia, he was said in character to be a true Roman, and he was quite learned in both Greek and Latin. He was a thorough Catholic Christian and an accomplished scripturist. He came up with the concept of Anno Domini, and this is medieval Latin for in the year of the Lord or in the year of our Lord. Let's just stop for a second there. This relates directly to the idea of the acceptable year of our Lord. We need to get down to brass tacks here. What is a year? Well, it has to do with the sun, does it not? If we did not have a sun, we would not have a year. If we did not have a sky that is our actual clock, we would not have a year. So just keep in mind that in the year of the Lord, in the year of our Lord, the acceptable year of our Lord, these things are all encoding an idea about our sky. Sorry, Jason, go ahead. All right, so this calendar era is based on the assumed year of the birth of the figure known as Jesus of Nazareth. 
A.D. are the years from this date, and B.C. is, of course, the time before this date. Uh, the other, the secular term used is C.E. for the modern era, meaning common era. Now, there is no year zero. This was devised by him in 525 and became widely used after 800. He also prepared a table for the future dates of Easter with a set of arguments explaining the calculations that he used and all that was that was involved with it. This was all done at the request of Pope John the First. So there's so many things to cover here. The no year zero, I mean, come on, that's a no-brainer. You've got the smartest people in the world, many of which speak multiple languages. We're going to get up to Scalinger here. I think he spoke 14 languages, which makes it all the more difficult to believe that parts of history were jacked up because of language differences. Some of these guys spoke every major language in the world if we were to accept the histories. But to get back to the Easter annals or the setting the future dates of Easter, here's a thing to consider. Even in the modern era, when I was writing articles, I covered this. Easter is set by this bizarre calendar. It's either called the Solar Luni or the Lunar Soli. Uh, no, Solar. I think it's Solar Luni calendar because in the West we use a solar calendar. In parts of the East, they still use a lunar calendar. Just to be perfectly clear, using the moon to divide a month, um, a moon, get it, is way, way. How can I put this? It's a more accurate and no-brainer way to divide up a month using the moon. But we use the sun now because of these guys in the West. When they wanted to set Easter, the problem became that it was going to be the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And so they couldn't do that with the sun. So they devised this thing called the solar loony calendar. Again, I'm demonstrating you flat out where the true clock of our existence is. It's in the sky. Even these guys who want to set the date for Easter are having to use the sun and moon both because their sun only calendar won't get them there. But you see, it's even more flagrant than that because it's not just the first full moon after the vernal equinox, it's pulled to the closest Sunday in most cases, the day of the sun. Do you follow? So I could break down a bunch of, of the bullet point that Jason uh, just hit, but there's so much to get through. I'll back off and, and give it back to you, Jason. All right. So next we're going to tackle the days of the week and how they came about. And what we're doing here, folks, is we're, we're trying to explain before we get to the alternate chronology that's been presented by several researchers to understand where our concept of time even comes from in the first place and how things were altered over the, over the centuries. Into an artificial system, you know, basically that's it, from a natural system to an artificial system. Go ahead, Jason. Right, absolutely. So the days of the week came about originally, as far as we can tell today, from the Babylonians originally naming the days after the five planetary bodies that were known to them, which would be Tuesday through Saturday, and also the sun and the moon which would be Sunday and Monday. The Romans later took up this custom, and it is said that between the 1st and 3rd centuries A.D. that the Roman Empire replaced their eight-day week, which was called the Nundinal Cycle, with a seven-day week. And the days are as we know them today, with their corresponding astronomical bodies are as follows. Sunday would be Sol or Helios. Monday, Luna or Selene. Tuesday, Mars or Aries. Wednesday, Mercurius or Hermes. Thursday, Iopiter or Jupiter, Friday, Venus or Aphrodite, and Saturday, Saturnus or Kronos. 
So just to make it perfectly clear, let's take Wednesday as an example, which is uh, Mercurius or Hermes. And of course, this is the whole alchemy thing wrapped up in Wednesday. But this is universal. These ideas are universal. Um, as an example, I hope I've got this right. I don't have it in front of me. I believe Odin, uh, the Norse god Odin is Wednesday, um, if I have that correct. Odin or Woden or Wednesday, I do believe you're correct. Yeah, so there it is. I mean, this is cross-cultural, cross-language. So there is a natural system at play here, which is still encoded in the words we use, but yet they have been completely detached from their meaning. Is it any wonder that, as an example, let's look at religious traditions, the Sabbath. The idea in the Bible is to keep the Sabbath holy. Well, the Sabbath is Saturday or Saturn's day or Kronos. To this day, Jews around the planet worship on the Sabbath. And even in our Bible, even though it's telling people to this day, as far as I can tell, Christians to keep the Sabbath holy, we worship mostly on the day of the sun or Sunday. And then there's the whole idea of how a month or a month gets broken down. I'm just pointing out to you that encoded in these words in plain sight are the very ideas that have been separated from them, which we no longer hold in our consciousness. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. So the mainstream history of antiquity was all tied together and put forth by a man named Joseph Justice Scaliger, who lived from 1540 until 1609. He was a French religious leader and scholar. He expanded the previously held thoughts on classical history from Greek and ancient Roman times to now include Persian, Babylonian, Jewish, and ancient Egyptian history. He is said to have applied the work of Nicholas Copernicus in figuring out his calculations on his regards to ancient calendar systems. And this very notion is what so many other new chronology researchers have a problem with to begin with. So there's a couple things here. Basically, just so people understand, Scaliger, Joseph Justice Scalinger. I think he's often referred to as Josephus, if I'm not mistaken. And that is referred to constantly in the histories we get. But this it, this man, if he ever existed, is the basis for the chronology and the history that we have. This is the guy. It's flat out stated that they're not quite sure if he was a Jesuit, although it appears quite probable that he was a Jesuit because he worked with other Jesuits. It is attributed to this man to having spoke something like 14 languages of the time. So when you start to get into the arguments that there might be problems with our modern chronology simply because of language barriers, that all kind of falls apart because this is the guy who's attributed with starting history and the historical timeline that we have and use called the Scaligerian chronology. Um, he spoke 14 languages. There wasn't really a major language in the world this guy couldn't tackle if we are to accept the history he's given. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. So the earliest historians started out detailing the events of a very small area over a very short period of time. To give a good example would be the reign of one king over a single city-state. Now, historical accounts grew more expansive over time, of course. Medieval texts, as an example, might chronicle a large country over a century or two. During the 16th and 17th centuries, historians realized that all they had was a huge pile of disconnected accounts, basically little bits and pieces of history that had no real solid relation to each other. So their task was to then take all of this information and try their best to assemble it into a full working timeline containing all known historical accounts of the entire world. Of course, there were a lot of problems to contend with, as one might surmise. Many historical accounts were not dated or used an unknown or, or archaic system of dating. Most were simply just a sequence of events. 
The mainstream historical chronology presently accepted and taught was, as we said, originated by Scaliger. He's the one that kind of put a lot of this together. So a lot of historians and scientists have raised very serious questions about this timeline that he proposed. For example, in the conventional timeline, Ptolemy, astronomer, philosopher, and also a historian, lived during the first and second century. However, the analysis of the vast amount of astronomical information contained in his star catalog, which is called the Almagest, proved that the only possible time of creation of this catalog was from somewhere between the 7th to 13th century AD, which is at least, of course, 500 years later. Despite this pretty much damning evidence, children in schools are still being taught that he was born in the first century. If, you, if, of course, you learn about him at all, considering how bad schools are these days. Then other disturbing things were noticed. History seemed to repeat itself. And not just like in the general sense of wars and territorial expansions, people taking over land and all that kind of nonsense, but in a very specific sense. This is what began the work on the new chronology. And the new chronology is a brand new world history timeline, the culmination of many years of work by various historians and scientists using the latest discoveries in mathematics, astronomy, linguistics, philology, and geology. Several researchers, starting with the 17th century, have made claims that the Scaligerian history contains errors. And some would say massive errors. Yeah, man. Um, for my money, Scalinger, if he existed, was an insider who was set to do what he was set to do. The idea that there was a man who spoke 14 different languages was among the most educated people that you could ever meet of that time with an education and a level of genius, if we're to accept what we read about him, that he would make mistakes based on language or other things. Um uh, it really begins to fall short. And so what we're kind of seeing here, particularly with like Ptolemy's Almagest, is that it has been demonstrated flat out using astronomical means, which are calculable and not, you know, really arguable. You can say an eclipse is going to happen here or things like this, that it could not have happened when it did. And yet the scientism, the kind of traditional science refuses to accept these new findings. And so what are we looking at here? Are we looking at some overarching influence that prevents new discoveries from correcting these old errors? Or is it simply people being stupid? For my money, it's the prior. It has to be the prior. See, in a in an educational system where people are truly there to learn or truly there to teach, they're going to want to take the new evidence. But what we actually see is every time – I'll give you an example. Egypt is a perfect example. On numerous occasions, it has been shown that the Egyptian timeline is completely bogus. And yet what we see is the traditional ideas about the chronology of Egypt, when, who ruled, all these things is never deviated from regardless of what may come to light. And again, in the Anatoly Flamenco stuff, or Flamenco stuff, there is endless narratives that point out the problems, even so far as taking astrologies painted within the Egyptian buildings and demonstrating that they couldn't have been much more than a thousand years ago. But anyhow, I don't. I guess I don't want to get too far into this. Um, we're coming up to the top of the hour, and I have an intro to put on. So maybe it's best if we kind of outline the false chronology that we're going to go down at this point. So it gives me time to do the intro, Jason. Right. There are several big name researchers slash historians, whatever you want to call them, that we're now going to get into in the second hour who had their own approach to figuring out what the timeline 
might actually be. Of course, the biggest one that's uh, well known today is flamenco, and I found his 22 books that are in uh, in English translation. They're they're very interesting. Uh, are they all accurate? I don't know, but there's something here to this, especially when you start looking at the astronomical data. So we're going to go through this in hour two and all these different folks approach to what the timeline might actually be. And basically they tear down Scaliger a lot. And of course, any mainstream historian is going to say this is ridiculous. I agree with you that it's scientism. Folks don't want to change things. They, they think that this is established fact and there's no reason to argue it or change anything. I mean, almost any time in a scholastic environment when you're going to take something from antiquity, you're told, oh, Josephus wrote this. There has been endless work done to show that Josephus might not have been a real person, that the things that are attributed to him are flawed beyond repair. It goes on and on and on. And yet the chronology we all live by is named after this man. It's called a Scaligerian chronology. That's from Scalinger. He's the guy. He's Josephus. He's the guy who is constantly referenced for all the supposed history that we had. And it's been shown time and time again to be false. As we get into the second hour, um, it's going to start to underscore, maybe not directly, but indirectly, the assertion that I'm making. It appears, and I've said this endless times on this show, that modern history that we have started to be written somewhere around the Middle Ages, around the Dark Ages, and it was rewritten falsely as it moved forward. Whatever came before was swept away and filled in with nonsense. My best educated guess at this point is because there is a natural system within which we exist, which is encoded in our religious texts, which is encoded all over the place, which has to do with the clock, which is the sky, which the Masons are encoding all over the place. It's encoded everywhere, as is alchemy. There was a natural knowledge that was critically, critically important to human beings. I don't know whether it extended our lives, made us have higher abilities. I don't know what was being hidden, but it is certainly this natural information which would relate to alchemy and knowledge of our sky or the clock. It was replaced with an artificial system. Now, knowing this, as we delve into the second hour, I will try to point out where I can um, the inconsistencies and the work that people can go look at to try to make their own uh, judgments. But again, I would submit I have a feeling that if I lived in Russia and spoke Russian, I would find a heck of a lot more people backing Anatoly Fomenko's work in a more meaningful way than we do in this part of the world. Um, that, again, is just an educated guess. But, Jason, anything you want to add before we wrap up the first hour? I didn't go at this with the intention of not even getting into the alternate chronology in the first hour. And there was just so much back history to even get out that it ate up all the time. And, I, you know, you don't even realize how much goes into this before we could even discuss the new chronology. You know what I mean? Yeah, th there's no doubt. Anyhow, the second hour is going to be jam-packed. And again, we'll try to provide links uh, both on YouTube and other places for people that want to go look at the Fomenko work. And the reason I keep pointing to Fomenko's work is because it really does arch out across any given name or person involved in this that you would want to look at. Anyhow, that brings the first hour of Crow 777 Radio podcast to a close. This is episode 64, and I hope to see you all over at Crow 777 radiocom for the second hour. Cheers. Cheers.